All right. I get to preach one more week here from Exodus chapter 23. So if you'd go there with me. Last week we went through verse 18, and so we're going to be in the second half of Exodus 23 today. Um, We planned on doing Exodus 23 and realized it was Mother's Day, and so uh, Exodus... 19, a first verse of the section we're going to be in is, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So that's going to be our Mother's Day insert there. All right, mother, there you go. Not really. Let's read uh, verses 19 through 33. This is the word of the Lord. The best of the fruit, first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites, to the Hittites, to the Perizzites, and to the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, the Hittites from before you. And I will not drive them out from before you in one year lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your borders from the sea, Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we open up your word today, your Holy Spirit would open us up as we study and examine and illuminate different parts God, by doing this, would you study and examine and illuminate us? We believe that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing and discerning the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. Enable us to receive your word today with humility and with gladness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, verse 19 this appears to be a completely obscure and out of place command. I will grant that. We're told not to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And throughout God's giving of the law, throughout God's giving of the law in in the entirety, throughout the Torah, the law, this prohibition is given no fewer than three times. Three times. So, This means God really thinks it's important for us to hear this for some reason, all right? So at a very basic level, what this is pointing us to is a reality that death and life do not mix. At a basic level, it's pointing us to the reality that death and life do not mix. And really, this is the case with God's uh, commands to his people. For many of God's commands to his people, this is the case. He's saying death and life do not mix. Holy and unholy do not mix. Mix. God over and over in the culture of his called out people wanted them to see and be reminded of this reality. The unholy and the holy cannot mix, cannot be joined together. He told them things like, don't breed two different kinds of cattle together. Don't plant two different kinds of seed in one field. Don't wear clothes with two different kinds of materials mixed together. 
Leviticus 19.19. He says, don't plow with an ox and a donkey together, Deuteronomy 22.10. Don't enter into marriages with unbelieving foreigners, Exodus 34.16. And the point of those is to communicate to us two different kinds cannot be mixed together. Life and death cannot be joined together. Holy and unholy cannot be joined together. And so, we could talk more about that, but th- and that'd be a whole thing in and of itself. But uh, because a mother's milk is given for life and flourishing, a mother's milk is given for life and for flourishing, to use that mother's milk to destroy would be a perversion. And the principle, I believe, applies to all kinds of things in, in our lives today. In our lives today, this applies to things like disciplining our children, educating our children. Uh, it applies to medical standards, medical ethics. Namely, we should take from this that what was meant for life and for flourishing should not be used for death and for destruction. So as it happens... In, in when God tells us this three different times throughout the law, when he tells us this all three times, it is surrounded by, immediately surrounded by commands regarding our giving to God. Tithe, first fruits, our giving. This command, all three times it's given. It's given in Exodus 34, 26. It's given here in Exodus 23. And it's given in Deuteronomy 14, 21. And at all three of those times, it is surrounded by commands regarding our giving to God. Okay? Twice, it is preceded by the command to bring the best of the first fruits into the house of the Lord. Twice. And then the other time in Deuteronomy 14, 21, it comes immediately before God lays out commands for the tithe being brought before the Lord. And so we can understand it at least in part as a prohibition that we do not take God's first fruits or God's tithe and consume and devour it for ourselves by ourselves. Okay? In the context, when God gives it to us in the context of giving to him, we can understand this as as God saying, don't Take what I have given you and consume it for yourself by yourself. It is to be brought before the Lord, to be given to the Lord, to even be consumed before the Lord, but not by ourself. And so we want to present to God what belongs to him. I want you to listen to the words of the prophet Malachi. And, and I want you to keep in mind the promises that we read from later on in our, in our chapter, in 23, what we're going to get to in a moment. Keep that in mind as we read these words from Malachi in relation to giving, our giving to God. This is what Malachi says in 3, 8 through 11. He says, will man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby, put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no need. Listen here. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. I will rebuke the devourer. So we're to steward well what God has given us and that includes giving to God what belongs to him. The tithe, the first fruits and if we don't, Just like this kid in the mother's milk, God's life-giving gifts to us will be, to us, destruction. You understand? Just like the kid being devoured in his mother's milk, when we, if we do not give to God what belongs to him, we will be consumed and devoured by what is supposed to be life and fruitfulness to us. Now, obviously, this is related to the first part of Exodus 23, the, what we read last week, uh, the different laws regarding how we worship 
God with our giving, but it's actually related to the next section as well regarding how Israel to, is to obey and what they are to do with what God is giving into their hands. Namely, in the context here in Exodus 23, what is it talking about? The land that he is giving them, the land and the inhabitants. And so, what are, we need to be careful. What are we going to do with this that God is giving into our hands? And so when God says by the prophet Malachi, he will rebuke the devourer when the people stop robbing him of his tithe and start believing his promise, I think that's an echo of what God is talking about here as he promises success and fruitfulness as they go in to take the promised land, as they go in to conquer the promised land. All right, verses 22, uh, 20 through 22, let's keep going. He says, behold, I will send an angel before you. Behold, I will send an angel before you. If we look back at Exodus 14, 19, it says that the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. Okay. In Exodus 13, 21, we are told the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them and along the way by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Then for the second time, okay, that's talking about Jesus. So we need to be careful. He says, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way to bring you to the place that I've prepared. And, and for the second time in chapter 23, this is what he says next. Pay attention. Here he says, pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. He warns that if they rebel against him, he will not pardon their transgression. He will not pardon their transgression if they rebel against him. This can be understood generally obey Jesus, do not disobey Jesus. That in, in their context specifically, you could say, obey Jesus, obey all the law that God has just laid out. You know, God gave the Ten Commandments and he proceeds to lay out these laws. And so God's saying, hey, pay attention, obey. And that's true, but more specifically here, I think this is talking about their following and obeying the angel Jesus as he's leading them into the land as he's leading them in to conquer the the land that he's promised to give them and this is why he says he will be an enemy to their enemies and an adversary to their adversaries and instead we know that the children of Israel did not obey the angel of God if you know the story you know that instead of following the command instead of obeying the voice of God instead of obeying Jesus to go in and conquer the land what did they do they did not believe they did not we see you know they send in spies remember they send in 12 spies to go and spy out the land and what happens is the 12 spies come back two give a good report and 10 give a false report to give an evil report. And the children of Israel, instead of believing God to say, go in, I am giving them into your hands, you will not, uh, you will not miscarry, you will be fruitful, you will live out your days. Instead of believing, they disbelieved. They believed a false report. They fell in with the many to do evil. They did not believe the word of the Lord. In Jude 5, Jude says this, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Did you hear that? That's shocking to our modern New Testament sensibilities, and we wouldn't believe it if it wasn't black and white in the New Testament, I'm telling you. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. Verse 23 in Exodus. Christ goes before us to conquer the world. Christ goes before us to conquer the world, just as he promised to go before the children of Israel as they conquered the land. 
Just as God promised to go with Moses from the burning bush, Exodus 3, 12. Just as God promised to go with Joshua as a conquering warrior, as he did go in to conquer the land, Joshua 1, 5 and 5, 13 through 15. So remember what Christ said to us in the Great Commission. Remember what he said to you, Christian, in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. Go in that authority. Go because of that. He promises to go before us into the world. This old covenant, remember, the old covenant is a type and a shadow of the new heavenly covenant in Christ. A good exercise for you to do would be to open your Bibles to the division of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and many of your Bibles may have a page there that says New Testament, left blank, you know, it just says New Testament. A good exercise for you to, would be to rip that out of your Bible. It's not helpful to us. I just heard a pastor, very famous pastor, Andy, Andy Stanley, say this very thing, that, that Christians need to unhitch, unhitch ourselves from the old covenant. It's not helpful for us in the new covenant. Lies, lies, lies. No, just like God promised to go before the children of Israel, Christ went before the children of Israel, conquer the promised land. He goes before us to conquer the world. So the old covenant is this type and a shadow of the new and heavenly covenant in Christ. While the promise to God's people under the old covenant is for a particular land, a particular plot of land, big plot, but a plot nonetheless, God's promise to the church, to his people in the new covenant is better. It's fuller. It's not a shadow anymore. God's promise to us in the new covenant is not for a plot of land. You know what it's for? The entire world. Christianity is truly a religion of world domination. Read, uh, read with me Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth. Mark 16, 15, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Acts 1, 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in, Jeru- in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And hear the promise given to Jesus by the Father in Psalm 2, in that old Covenant, listen to the promise that the Father made the Son in Psalm 2, verse 8. He says, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That is beautiful, beautiful promise. Verses 24 through 28 he says, you shall not bow down or to their gods, nor serve them, nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them. Utterly overthrow them. In other words, we must pay careful attention that we, make, that we do not make appeals to their gods. We do not make appeals to their gods or do as the pagans do. We don't bow down to their gods. We don't worship their gods. We don't make appeals to their gods. We tear down the idols as we go in to conquer the land. And so our cries and our prayers, for example, we see this when tragedy strikes, when tragedy strikes our nation. Our cry, as Christians, our cries and our prayers do not uh, ascend over to the little gods who have set themselves up in our state houses. When, when, inju- when justice is assaulted, when tragedy strikes, we do not 
bow down and pray and petition the little gods who have set themselves up in state houses. We don't, we, we, we should not pray and cry to them. And this is what you'll see. You see this after, you know, tragedies like school shootings. You'll see people, you know, being interviewed on, on the television. You'll see them crying out in anguish, in desperation. What are they doing? They're praying. And they're praying to President Trump or they're praying to Congress to do this or to do that. But our cries when justice is assaulted, our cries when tragedy strikes do not go to them. Our prayers don't go to them. They go to the God of the universe. When when sickness and disease pummel our mortal flesh, we don't fear and plead with the little gods of science and the little gods of the healthcare system. Okay? We don't bow down with the pinch of incense to them. We go to our God, the true God. We say, God, this is what has, this is what has come. I have cancer. God, your will be done. I will not bow down to the little gods over here. I will not give in to the fear. God, your will be done. God, you are a healer. You are able. Your will be done. We trust in the name of our Lord. And this is the thing. We, when we do this, when we follow Jesus, he promises us abundant life, John 10, 10. When we trust and obey Jesus, when we abide in him, he promises us fruitfulness, promises us fruitfulness, John 15, 5. And I think it's interesting to notice here that as God is promising the children of Israel the land, he promises that they will, will not miscarry. He promises that they will not be barren. What does that imply? Just think about this for a minute. So God tells them to go in and the men are to go in as warriors and they are to fight. They were conscripted. Everybody got, every male who was of age was a part of this, okay? And what does he promise here? That they will not be barren, they will not miscarry. What does that imply? That guess what? They will have families. The men will not be wiped out. <laughs> I mean, we can read between the lines on that one. He says, even explicitly, this is what he says. He says, he will fulfill the number of their days. And yet when the 10 spies come back and they strike fear into the people by bringing the evil and the false report, they bring back the report that the land will devour us. They don't believe it. They don't believe God's promise. God promises to drive out their enemies, to give them the land, and the people stubbornly refuse to believe the promise as if the signs that God has shown them were not enough to demonstrate his faithfulness. The signs, they did not believe God as if the signs that he had shown them up to this point were not enough to demonstrate, to prove his faithfulness to them. There were the 10 plagues in Egypt, the, the miraculous deliverance from Egypt, the plundering of the Egyptians miraculously, the pillar of fire, the cloud. They walked through the Red Sea on dry land. They literally can look to their right and look to their left and see a wall of water heaped up and they are walking across the uh, Red Sea on dry land. And yet they don't believe. Even as God promises that he would fulfill the number of their days and give them children in the land, they don't believe. And again, I want to read you Jude 5. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Jesus destroyed those who did not believe. Why? Why? Because they had every reason to believe. 
They had every reason to anchor their trust in the God who delivered them and the God who redeemed them. Christ was leading them out of Egypt. Hebrews tells us this. Moses followed Jesus. Moses was a Christian. They followed Jesus. Christ was leading them out of Egypt and they stubbornly refused to follow him. So how much more stubborn and rebellious and slow of heart to believe are we? Have you ever read the Old Testament, especially these stories of them wandering in the wilderness? I'm sure you've been like me and you've seen that and you've said, oh my goodness, these people, are they just that slow? Are they that stupid? But the real question is how much more stubborn and rebellious and slow of heart to believe are we? Christ fellowship. We who have been delivered not just from slavery in Egypt, we have been delivered from sin and death. We have not only seen the miraculous deliverance through a sea from an enraged Pharaoh, we have seen a way open up for us through the broken body of God's incarnate Son. That we might be delivered from the just wrath, not of some pathetic, fickle Pharaoh, but from the just wrath of the holy God who created us. You see, we can look at them and we can say, guys, you literally saw the Red Sea open up and you crossed through it and you think now God is like tricking you to kill you? How dumb are you? We're reading that. Of course, we have the hindsight. But the real question is not how dumb are they? The real question is how foolish are we? Our deliverance was infinitely greater than deliverance through a Red Sea, more miraculous than deliverance through a Red Sea on dry ground. Man, God can control water. He can make it heap up like, you know, a wall. That's incredible. I'll tell you what's even more incredible, that God would send his only begotten son and slay him, crucify him, open up his flesh and allow me and you, sinner, to pass through to the Holy of Holies. That's incredible. How slow of heart are we? We read about the account of the double-minded and the hypocritical children of Israel and we think how ungrateful, how silly they are for not trusting God who is feeding them with bread from heaven and yet here we are. Those who have been given the bread of heaven, the bread of life. And we're doubting God's sweet and bitter providence in our life. How much more absurd is our doubt and our unbelief? So, the, so, the, so then think about it. Jesus led them out, delivered them from Egypt, and destroyed them for their unbelief because they had reason to believe. What will he do with us? How much more foolish is our stubborn rebellion and our hypocrisy? What more could God, what more could God, who gave his only begotten son, possibly do to prove his love and his care for you? What more could he possibly do to prove his love and his care for you? What more? And by his resurrection to new life, prove his victory over sin and death. God loves you and he does not ever fail. God promises to scatter our enemies, to not tolerate them. You hear that? He does not tell us he's going to tolerate our enemies. He tells us he is going to scatter them. 
He's not going to negotiate with them. This is what the Bible says, okay? Exodus 23. It says he's not going it, to negotiate with them. This is what it says he's going to do. Terrorize them. The T word, I said it. That's what the Bible says God is going to do to his enemies, to our enemies. Terrorize them. Drive them out. And again, when Jesus gives us the great commission in Matthew 28, he tells us that all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to him. There are no campaigns and elections. There are no negotiations. He sends us out to conquer. He sends us to make war against powers and against principalities, against the gates of hell. He sends us to assault the gates of hell. He sends us out as light in the darkness. Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means to be sent out as light in the darkness? It means you cannot lose. You flick the light switch off in here, it'll be dark. You turn the light switch on, it will be light. Light drives out the darkness. It's what it does. And this is what God does. He sends us out as light into the darkness. He goes before us as the light of the world and we will not fail. He will not fail. Verses 29 through 30 tell us and teach us that this is not going to happen overnight. This is not going to happen overnight. We uh, talked a little bit about post-millennialism and pre-millennialism in our Sunday school this morning, looking back at the uh, church during the time of the Civil War and the shift that took place where they went from being optimistic about the kingdom of God to being very pessimistic regarding the kingdom of God and the success of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. And so one thing we could take right here from Exodus 23 is that this is the promise that God makes us. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to be done little by little. God says that he will make them decrease and Israel to increase little by little. Little. And this is exactly, by the way, this is why, again, this week we're using leavened bread to show us what we talked about last week. This is what God is doing. The, the Pentecost, we go from Passover, the unleavening, to Pentecost, the new leaven that is going to grow and expand the kingdom that is like leaven that is going to work and expand and grow. And so this is what Jesus is communicating when he tells us in Matthew 13, he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened, till it was all leavened. So first, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that grows gradually, not instantly. The kingdom of heaven does not come, boom, overnight. The kingdom of heaven gradually increases and grows. But do you know why Jesus does not only say, if you look at Matthew 13, 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leaven. Do you know why Jesus didn't just say the kingdom of heaven is like leaven? That would commun- that'd be enough to communicate the point of it grows gradually. Why did he say, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened? Why? <laughs> you know what he's doing? He is telling us, he's communicating to us that he keeps his promises. Let me explain. He's drawing our attention back all the way back to Genesis 18:6 where the woman Sarah takes three measures of flour to make cakes for the Lord who is visiting and who made them a promise the Lord visits Abraham and Sarah and and uh, Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and, and said quickly make ready three measures of fine meal knead it and make cakes and this is what she does 
the Lord had visited them and he made them a promise. You know what that promise was? You're going to bear a son. I'm making you a promise that promises a son. And so Jesus, when he tells us the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, he's drawing our attention back to the promise. And he's saying, listen, I'm not forgetful and I'm not a liar. I made a promise and I'm keeping my promise. He made the promise that the covenant, that through the promised seed of Abraham, all the families of the earth would be blessed. That Abraham would be a father of many nations and all the families of the earth would be blessed. And when Jesus tells us this about the kingdom, he's drawing our attention back to the promise that he is still fulfilling. (laughs) Abraham's one son had two sons who had 12 sons and so on and so forth. And so when the fullness of time had come, Christ, the ultimate the true son of promise came and conquered and is conquering. He came and he conquered and he is conquering. Little by little until he has put, this is what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, mark this, mark this and go read it later. 1 Corinthians 15, 25 through 26. Mark that and go read it later. This is what Paul is telling us. He says, he will reign, he will conquer little by little until he has put all his enemies under his feet, including the last enemy to be destroyed, death itself. Verse 31 there, I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. I will give the inhabitants of the land in your hand. This is coupled with the instruction to drive them out. But notice up in verse 30, God says, I will drive them out. In verse 30, he says, I will drive them out. And yet in the next breath, he says, you shall drive them out. So uh, which one is it? Will God drive them out or will his people drive them out? The answer? Yes. <laughs> Yes, and this is exactly how God speaks to us in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Christian, work. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Who's working? Are you working or is God working? Are you working, Christian, or is God working? Yes. Will he drive them out or will you drive them out? Yes. Yes. Verses 32 and 33. If you look back to Exodus 20, where God begins to lay out his covenant law, where we see the 10 commandments. God gives the 10 commandments there. And it's, uh, he, he lays out his covenant law to Moses and to his people. You'll notice that God is ending here where he started with the first two commandments. I'm gonna read these to you, Exodus 21 through six. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then here in Exodus 23, 32, and 33, he says, you shall, not, you shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. And so I want us to be really careful here because there's a way to read this law. There's a, there's a way to read this as true and historical because it is. 
but then to just brush it off, to just kind of put it up on the shelf as some kind of archaic paganism that we don't have to worry about anymore, some kind of archaic idolatry that we don't have to worry about in, in uh, our modern culture, our modern times. And this would be a grave mistake, and it would be a grave mistake that too many of us have already made. We don't even know what idolatry looks like anymore. We don't know what idolatry looks like, and therefore we don't even know how to guard against it. We're not just talking about practices that you would expect to see from Mayans or Aztecs or some other kind of pagan civilization. Is that idolatry? Yes. But when, when God warns us against idolatry, against uh, making covenants with them and their gods, serving their gods, in our modern time, in our modern minds, we think of bowing down to a totem pole or something like that. Oh, we, we don't got to worry about that. We won't do that. That's, we need to know what idolatry looks like for us today, right now. And we need to know how to guard against it. We're not just talking about those kinds of ancient pagan civilizations, civilizations and their practices. It applies to every Christian in every time and in every culture. God's prohibition to make no covenants with unbelievers and their gods is a prohibition that seamlessly applies to us now in the new covenant. It seamlessly applies to you today. So let me end by reading to you the words of Paul to the Corinthians who, who talks directly to this issue. And this is where, we'll get, where, where we are going to end. 2 Corinthians 6, four, starting in verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty." Since we have these promises, Paul says, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. As we get ready to come again to the Lord's table, as we are invited back yet again to commune with God at this table. I want to remind you of the story of Peter who, uh, when he steps out of the boat, Jesus is walking on the water and Peter steps out of the boat to walk on the water to Jesus. If you remember that story, you will remember that he was fine until he took his eyes off of his rock. He was, I mean, just think about it for a minute. He was literally walking on water. He was literally walking on water in the middle of the sea, in the wind and the waves. But that miraculous occurrence wasn't enough. It wasn't enough for him to step out of the boat and to literally defy the law of physics and walk on water. It wasn't enough. The fact that he was walking on water was not enough. Only when he was fixed on Jesus was he safe above the darkness and the death that was lapping at his heels ready to swallow him. Only when he had his eyes fixed on Jesus. And so we have been given a promise. You have been given a promise better than what we find in Exodus 23. Better. And when you find yourself, when you, Christian, find yourself in the darkness, when you find yourself beginning to doubt 
beginning to sink, being tempted to believe the lies, being tempted to throw in the towel. Remember what God has said. Remember his promise is sure and look to him. So look to him even now and come and welcome. Your charge is going to be specific for Mother's Day today. I'm going to go ahead and ask you to stand. We're going to, I'm going to give you this exhortation and then we're going to sing the doxology and that's going to be our closing. The distinguishing mark of Christianity is that God's spirit comes to dwell within common, ordinary people and that through them, the spirit of God manifests the life of Jesus to the believing community and to the world. The word ordinary simply means normal with no special or distinctive features. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that women have no special or distinctive features, for they certainly do. I am saying, though, that womanhood and women are ordinary. It is perfectly normal and ordinary in every way to be a woman. God has made it so. God used an ordinary virgin of Israel to birth and to be the mother of his son. The miracle of motherhood is that God takes the ordinary, the normal among us in human weakness, and through normal means in ordinary vessels, he places the future of the entire human race. God places humanity's future in the hearts and wombs and hands of women. He made woman to be for this purpose. God's purpose for woman is more vital and more glorious than many realize, probably than most realize. We should not forget this. In fact, God commands that both man and woman remember and honor this. God uniquely fashions these ordinary vessels called women in the most wonderful way to carry out his purpose to see the earth filled with his glorious image. Women in particular, mothers, you have nothing to prove to anyone, certainly not the culture of this world that constantly implies that you must compete with and compare to men to find your true worth. That is a lie from the pit of hell to demean you, to diminish you, and ultimately to destroy the biblical truth of womanhood. Your worth is in God as the woman he has created you to be in Jesus Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. No woman needs to try to be anyone or anything other than who God has created her to be in Christ. Women, you need only be who God has ordained you to be as revealed in his word and illuminated by his spirit that dwells in you. As God has graced you to be a woman, thank him that he has created you for that glorious calling. Be confident as a woman. Celebrate your womanhood. Embrace the differences between women and men and be assured that God created man and woman with those differences. Women, you are the part counterpart to man. At creation, man was incomplete without the woman. That is still true. That is God's plan. The relationship between man and woman is not a competition, but complementary in creation. Each has their God-ordained place and function so that the two become one flesh. Women and mothers, you are created by God, equipped by God, empowered by God, and destined by God for greatness in the most ordinary ways, through the most ordinary means, in the most ordinary and mundane tasks of daily life and work. God can and does extraordinary things, but he works mostly in the ordinary through daily joys and daily struggles, daily gains and daily losses, through progress and through setbacks, through fears of tears of joy and tears of pain and times of great rejoicing and times of great sadness 
in all of these ordinary things, God works. God uses all, each and every day, to craft his story. Woman, you are, we all are, part of God's story. Ordinary humanity created for his extraordinary glory. God works most powerfully in you through the ordinary means of ordinary life. So woman, celebrate the ordinary you with your ordinary life. It is perfectly normal to do so. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. Remember to celebrate in the messy struggles. Note the painful reminders and remember to rejoice in the Lord. Do not miss the passing opportunities found in those joyful moments and seasons of your life. In all things and for all things, be thankful. Trust your God who brings beauty from ashes and joy in the morning. His story and so your story has the happiest ending. Even with painful struggle and tragic loss along the way, God has graced you and equipped you for all things he leads you into. Nothing has caught him off guard even if it has you off balance. If God has given you the grace and the privilege to be born a woman, I pray that you are thankful for that gift. I pray that you are mindful of the glorious purpose God has ordained for you as an ordinary woman with an ordinary life, experiencing the ordinary ups and downs that come with life's normal struggles in the kingdom's daily warfare. Life does not always look or feel like it is filled with glory and purpose, but it is. Woman, your life is full of purpose and filled with glory, not because it always feels and looks such, but because God has ordained and declared such. We walk by faith, not by sight, and this is our victory that has overcome the world, our faith. If God has made you a mother, then mother through the struggles with his joy that strengthens you. Know that God has promised your labor in the Lord is not in vain, but it is powerful, victorious, and it is glorious. It is not without joy, so find it and live in it daily. Women, enjoy your God and enjoy your life. You have not only been given a gift, but you are a gift. Make the most of it. Make the most of it for you, for those around you, but mostly for his glory. Happy day, happy life. I pray this today and every day. Amen.